And our sermon lesson is from Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Our God, we thank you that you do speak to us in your goodness and in your grace. And we ask that you would give us open eyes and open ears and open hearts. And it's in your great name we pray. Amen. So this is our final week in the Psalms before we begin together a much longer journey going through the Gospel of Matthew, where we're going to be considering the life of Jesus and really what it means to follow Him with all that we are. But for today, we find ourselves at the very end of this collection of psalms, and it's easy for us to think about these psalms as kind of a group of of poems and prayers that are just randomly thrown together. Kind of like you, you discover this box of old prayers and, and you just mash them all together and the order doesn't really matter. But as we take a closer look, we begin to realize that something very different is at work. That from beginning to end, these psalms are arranged in a very specific order. So that there is a reason why Psalm 1 is the opening to the book of Psalms, and there is a reason why Psalm 150 marks the closing of this book of ancient prayers. I remember growing up, we would go often to a lake house in Alabama to my grandparents to, for July 4th, and they didn't sell fireworks in Georgia at that time, and so we'd always stop at the border and purchase fireworks. And I remember setting them off So often we were so excited about uh, the bigger fireworks that we had that we would put those off first. And often when you came to the end of our kind of fireworks display, it was just whatever was left in at the bottom of the barrel. A few weeks ago, we were at a different fireworks display, a much bigger and much better one. And everything in that display is building up to what we all would call the grand finale, so that the end feels very different than the beginning. The end is not anticlimactic in any way, but it's, it's ushering in this, this great ending to this story that has been before our eyes. When you think about what's happening in the book of Psalms, there's something very similar going on. There is this buildup, and you see it especially ramp up in Psalms 145 through 149, where Things are growing in this crescendo, and Psalm 150 is this grand finale to the book of Psalms. And here's what we're going to see this morning. In Psalm 150, there are two specific calls for us here and now. Psalm 150, as this grand finale, is calling us to be one, a people of worship, And Psalm 150, as this grand finale, is calling us to to be a people of hope. So, Psalm 150, grand finale, it's calling us worship and hope. So, first, 
this call to be a people of worship. I want you to notice what Psalm 150 opens and closes with. It opens and closes with these familiar words, praise the Lord. Which if you're reading this in the Hebrew, it opens and closes with just one word. And that word is hallelujah. If you wonder why we say that or why our songs often sing that, it's simply the Hebrew for Praise the Lord. And that being the bookends is going to tell you what this psalm is going to be about. So that 11 other times you're going to hear this repetition. Praise Him. 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 Do you want to know what Psalm 150 is going to be about or what's being communicated or what's happening here? Uh, What's happening is worship and praise. One of the most helpful things that I've I've read and heard on praise comes from some of C.S. Lewis's reflections on the Psalms. As many of you know, he, he wrote many different books, but often was best known for his communicating the gospel to a world that really didn't understand it and and in many ways still doesn't. And he talks about his own uh, coming to faith and how before he came to faith, the Psalms were actually very difficult for him because it seemed like God was speaking out of this place of neediness, needing to be told again and again how great and how good he was even when as far as describing it as it sounded like God was kind of like an old, vain woman looking for just compliments, just hungry to be told about how wonderful and and great they were. But I'm going to read something a little bit longer, and I want you to try to lock into this. Because he says here, "The, the most obvious fact about praise escaped me. I never notice that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless it's checked. The, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, Actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical people, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even politicians and scholars. I had not noticed either that just as others spontaneously praise whatever they value, they also urge others in joining them. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? So the psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all do when they speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. One picture of that is is my wife recently went with um, her mom to, to Paris. And there she was able to visit the Louvre, which is one of the world's greatest art museums. And she was able to visit the Palace of Versailles, which is one of the greatest royal palaces. And when when she got home, it was not hard for her to talk about those things. There was something about seeing that magnificence 
and that beauty that overflowed, that, that moved her and that overflowed in wanting to share that. There was something in that her joy was incomplete until it is expressed and shared. Our kids do this all the time. I know my kids do. Dad, you've got to see this. Isn't this amazing? There's something about how God has wired our hearts that we were meant to enjoy beauty. And then we were meant to not only just keep it to ourselves, but share it. There's something in human flourishing that has to walk through that together. But here's how it ties into worship and the Psalms in particular. If God has wired us in that way, there's got to be something more beautiful, more valuable, something that surpasses anything else that we experience in this world. And that's what the psalmist here is doing, is he's drawing our attention not to all these things about creation, but he's pointing our gaze to the Creator. The Psalms do this in other ways. Psalm 36, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. Psalm 63, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And Psalm 16, in your presence there's fullness of joy. Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 106, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Or as this psalmist says, praise Him according to His excellent greatness, according to His mighty deeds. Who He is and what He's done. There's something about God that this psalmist is moved by and wants us to be moved by as well. And so this Psalm is not just something for us to, to stand by and, and look at from the background, but it's something that we are called to enter in personally, to take our place. It's easy for worship to feel like something in which we're just going through the motions. And Jesus critiqued some of the religious leaders of, of His day who were doing just that. He said, they honor Me with their lips, but their hearts in reality are very, very far from me. And what God wants for us is for there to be this beautiful alignment between what's going on in our hearts and what's coming out in our mouths. There's a real helpful article that um, I read during my, uh, kind of some of my counseling classes in seminary called X-Ray Questions by a counselor named David Pallison. And what he's trying to do is trying to, to, in a similar way that an x-ray provides an internal look at what's going on in our bodies, he provides some different questions that are meant to prod us to think about what's going on inside of us. And as I was going through some of the questions, I was struck by how much they have to do with worship or how much they have to do with what we love because we, we praise what we prize. Questions we should think about, like, what do you want? What do you look forward to? What would bring you the greatest pleasure, happiness, and delight? What do you talk about? What's important to you? How do you spend your time? What are your priorities? What do you want to get out of life? When you wake up, what does your mind drift to? What preoccupates, preoccupies your thoughts? What do you love? What would make your life sing? We praise what we prize. 
But we see here in the psalm that we're called to join in, not just personally, but communally. We live in a, in a culture and in a time that is highly individualistic. Things like COVID and have just accentuated that, where we divide worship and a life of faith from community. But God meant for these to go beautifully together. There's an old Pixar short. I don't know how many of you remember, and I don't remember what movie it came before, but it's called One Man Band. And in it, there's, uh, there's this character, and as you look at him, he's got this, this big drum in front of him. He's got a clarinet, a flute, a drum on his back, a tambourine on his foot, and he's got an accordion. He, he's doing all these different things. He's essentially a one-man band. When you look at this psalm and the talk about praising God with trumpet and harp and lute and tambourine and strings and pipes, um, it's not calling us to be a, a one-man band. You cannot obey this psalm on your own. It's calling us to join together in community with other voices, with other stories, with other experiences of His grace, because there's something we miss when we do life apart from one another. I can see God's grace refracted in different ways through your lives as He is at work there. When we join together, we see a fuller picture of who God is and of what He has done. And what the worship that we are called to is a joining together of that, of life and stories and experience and celebrating together. This psalm is a call to worship, to see God as truly beautiful and truly worshipful and to experience that and to join together with us. But more than that, it's also, it's also a call uh, to hope. And this call to hope isn't apparent on the surface because it has little to do what is actually in the psalm, but the call to hope has everything to do with what's not in the psalm. So there are some in here who have uh, had cancer in the past and you've been through treatment and, and now you are in remission, but what that means is that every three or four months you go to get scans again. And so the doctor scans your body, and what you are hoping and praying for is a negative scan. You want to look at this scan of whatever part of your body, and you're looking not for what's there, but what's not there. You are hoping for the absence of any type of cancer. That is a good scan. There's something about this psalm that makes it different than every other psalm in the Bible. Something sets this psalm apart than all the 149 that come before it. And it has nothing to do with what's in the psalm, but everything to do about what's not in the psalm. What makes this psalm so different is that there is no hint or trace of shadow or darkness to be found at all. Psalm 148 comes really close, but only Psalm 150 has no hint. There's no suffering. There's no sin. There's no cry for help. There's no plea for mercy. There's no lament. There's no guilt. There's no shame. 
There's no confusion. There's no fear. There's no oppression. There's no injustice. There's no sickness. There's no death. The collection of 150 psalms could have just as easily ended with Psalm 88, which closes with the words, darkness is my only friend. (laughs) That would have communicated something clearly to us. But in this carefully curated collection, it does not end there. It ends with this note where there is no hint, no trace, no smell of shadow and all. Instead, it's just a collection of prayers that ends with an explosion of praise. Which begs the question, why? Why is this psalm so different than the others? And why is it placed here? And the answer that that we have that ties into the rest of Scripture is that there is a movement to all human history. Human history is not cyclical. We're not trapped in these ever, never-ending cycles. Nor is history just random chance, chaotic and unpredictable. God is moving us and God is moving all of history in a very particular direction towards a real destination and towards a very good ending where what is broken will be healed, what is wrong will be made right, what is dead will be made alive, where prayer and longing will be turned into praise and gratitude. Enjoy. So what that means for us is that this psalm is a call to us to hope. Hope that our story will end well. Hope is a distinctively Christian concept. In order to have real hope, you have to have a real author who's writing the story. You cannot have just random chance. You have to have somebody who is orchestrating things to a specific end. You know, we, we laugh about the ending to, the alternate ending to the little engine that could, which I don't think is going to catch on in the public sphere. But if there's, if there's no God, our, the story of our lives, our world, and our universe has a, has a very similar, just tragic ending. The story of our lives is just going to end in death. And that's all there is to it. And after that, there's nothing. You're just gone forever. The story of our world, all life, as we know, it's going to end a billion years from now. 2.5 billion years from now, the surface of the earth is basically going to melt. And 7.5 billion years from now, it's going to kind of merge with the sun. So, good. Um, The story of our universe One day it's going to suffer its own fate, which scientists um, have effectively called either the big freeze, the big rip, the big crunch, the big bounce, or the big slurp. Um, None of those have a happy ending. It's not happily ever in after. It's just the universe and life crashed. Everybody was sad. The end. Hope is an illusion. The Psalms do not deny the darker parts of life. We've seen that over the past few weeks. 
One of the reasons why the Psalms still resonate with us so much today is because they capture the broad range of human experience and human emotion and human longing. Psalm 150 is not just whitewashing all of the problems of the world and the problems of our lives and saying, uh, just praise the Lord. Kind of fake it till you make it. Read the previous 149 Psalms to get a sense of the life of faith. But what Psalm 150 does tell us is that will not triumph sin, darkness, brokenness, evil, injustice, oppression. Those will not have the victory. God says, I am writing a very different end to this story. Psalm 150 reminds us that our end is not an emptiness, death, despair, but fullness, life, and joy. There was a time after Jesus' gruesome crucifixion that his, some of His disciples were walking along the road. And they did not know what to make of His death. They had hopes of who He would be for them and for the world, of the kind of rescue that He would bring about. And their hopes of what He would do had nothing to do with crucifixion, humiliation, torture, and death. And so now their lives are in disarray. And Jesus comes alongside of them in a way that they cannot recognize. And He's asking them about why they are so sad and why they are so downcast. And they, and they look at Him and they say, haven't you heard? Haven't you heard about this Jesus? And they said, we had hoped that He would be the one to redeem Israel. What you're hearing in them is we had hoped that our story would end better. And we had hoped that He was the one to make sure that it ended better. But it didn't. It ended in tragedy. And that's all that we have. We're trying to pick up the broken pieces. But then something happens. Jesus opens their eyes and opens their hearts through the Scriptures to show them that hope is not lost, that His death and His resurrection is this seed of new life that secures a good ending to our story. I want to close with just two simple questions. The first is, do you want to be a part of this good ending? It is not automatic. It's a story that we are invited to be a part of, called to be a part of, warned to be a part of. But it's a story that requires a response, one of what the Bible calls repentance and faith, of a turning away and a turning towards and embracing God and His Son as Savior and as Lord. And the second question is, is, do you live as if there was hope that was real? So often, I think as, as Christians, we can live as functional atheists. We say all these things about hope and about what God is doing, but when you look at our lives, we're, we're filled with fear, filled with dread convinced that our story is going to end bad. But how might it look differently if we knew the ending and we knew that the author had a very important place for us in that ending? And that as the, psalm, the, the song that we so often sing is true, all, all will be well. We're people of worship and we're people of hope. For in this hope we're saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for it, 
What we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Let's pray. God, we ask simply that you would help us to rejoice in hope, to be patient in affliction, and to be constant in prayer. In your name we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing with us.